0: Hello, I'm Sean Dunderdale. I'm the new robot presenter of the farming programme as we're discussing robotics and the effect they're having on the world of agriculture.
1: Whoa, 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 hang on, hang on. Robots might be taking over farming, but it's not taking over this programme just yet. Uh, Yes, we are talking robots this morning, but are they really the future for agriculture? The
0: technology, without doubt, is there. You know, there is the machine that can pick a strawberry, but the human hand is still proving more efficient. Also this week,
1: neonyx and glyphosate with eight months to go before the latter could be banned. Plus, Chris Spratt has your grain report this week. Busy week, Chris. Well,
2: I suppose political influences continue. The announcement on Tuesday of the uh, general election on the 8th of June. Uh, So we're now joining France, Italy and Germany in voting for the new governments over the next few months. So we are unified in some way, Sean. Indeed, more from Chris in a short while. The Week in Agriculture.
0: This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale.
1: Hello, I am here. Not a robot, just yet. Give it time. In eight months' time, you heard me right, glyphosate use could be no more. It's uh, certainly causing concern for those in farming. The loss of neonics is also a cause for concern and a meeting was held this week in Cambridge with various industry leaders in attendance. Our agronomist Sean Sparling was part of that meeting. He's on a steering group looking at the issue. He's also, I think I'm right, Sean, producing a report due out soon on glyphosate. Is that right?
3: Yes, morning, Sean. There's an awful lot going on behind the scenes in UK agriculture that people may not be aware of. Obviously, glyphosate we're aware of, and I can't go into details, but a report will be produced next week um, largely detailing the possible effects of a ban on uh, UK agriculture and the wider economy but what I want to just mention is something people may not know about and that is there are new European Commission proposals that threaten our cereal and sugar beet seed dressings as well in the UK. We use seed dressings as a very very targeted way of dealing with a problem particularly insect pests. Um, It's precision farming at its best because it's right down to seed level and it enables us to put Uh, an insecticide on a seed that is purely contained within that plant, so only the pests we're after are affected and we protect the beneficials to a much wider extent than we ever can by applying insecticides. Now, In March the European Commission submitted new proposals to a standing committee of Member States to ban all outdoor use of neonicotinoid seed dressings in non-bee attractive crops like wheat, barley and sugar bee. Now in the explanation, the Commission based all their proposals on a bee guidance document which had not even been ratified by the Member States, produced by activists, not even been ratified by the Member State. Now, these proposals will be discussed during the next Standing Committee, which is scheduled for around the 17th, 18th of May, 2017. And normally they would be discussed at great length, but the Commission has also included in the proposals the possibility of a rapid phase-out to come into force next year. So the decision to table those proposals was made without any consideration whatsoever of the impact that ban might have on a UK or European farmer's ability to grow a high-quality, affordable crop of wheat, barley, sugar beet, And we're all very, very concerned about bee health. I'm on record as saying that. The whole industry is concerned about bee health. But to propose a ban based on concerns for bees and pollinators... It's absolutely bizarre because bees don't even forage or even visit cereals or sugar beet on a regular basis. So we use a product Deter, which is Clothianidine and that's used as a seed treatment in wheat and barley mostly to control aphids which is the major carrier of BYDV and CYDV and without the seed treatment we would probably need to spray an extra one or two times with a broad-spectrum insecticide. Now, since farmers use the turf for aphid control and BYDV on an area of about two and a half million acres across the UK, that means two and a half million acres would receive another insecticide spray that it doesn't get today because of that targeted precision use of the seed dressing. That's an area about half the size of Wales, and in addition to that, That'll use an extra 220,000 litres of diesel. That's uh, 200 million litres of water, roughly. It's an extraordinary situation that we're finding ourselves in here. Now, also, of course, deter is used to deter slug attack on the seeds um, as much as it is for its insecticidal activity. And if you don't use that seed dressing, that means we'll be using about 1,600 tonnes more slug pellets. That just seems ridiculous. For something that is inherently safe to bees, which is the whole point of which they're trying to get it removed. Now you move on to sugar beet, we use poncho Beta and cruiser, um, and that is a real difficult issue for us because there's no alternative spray to control the most important aphids, mises persicae, that carry beet virus yellows, and it may be impossible to control that, that virus in the absence of an effective seed treatment. So The situation needs to be explained to the politicians in Brussels, in Westminster and even the devolved Parliament, Scotland, Ireland, Wales. These people are the ones who will make that decision about the use of these seed treatments. So I would urge you to write a letter or email your local MP, the MEPs in your area. They need to hear about what impact that ban will have on your ability to continue with your economical business. Why do you use these products? What do you do if they're not available? Would you have to spray more often, use more slug pellets, etc., etc.? And what about negative effects? Explain what you think about the Commission making these proposals without even checking what impact they could have on growing cereals or beet in your area.
1: Sean Sparling and the uh, possible loss of Neonix. We'll uh, hear more from Sean with his regular agronomy report later in the programme. Last week, we discussed lambing and the number of triplets being born to use this year. Well, despite that, finding British lamb in the supermarkets over the Easter weekend seemed to become the new Easter egg hunt. In fact, there was more chance of finding Easter eggs. Why are supermarkets so keen on New Zealand lamb? And what needs to be done to change their attitude? James Seely is auctioneer at Newark Livestock Market, and he's raised the issue once or twice before.
4: Really, it's one of my biggest bugbears Um Uh, at the moment. I mean, we see it particularly through social media of late. um, You know, all these supermarkets bang the drum about how proud they are to back British farmers, etc, etc. And and consistently we've seen over the Easter period, you know, like you say, uh, a massive stock of New Zealand and Australian lamb. Um, I mean, the the Saturday before Easter uh, through Newark I sold 5,000 head of Hogs or, or sort of old season lambs. Uh, now, for any any supermarket uh, to be saying to us that there's a lack of supply and quality of British lamb for them to be shock, uh, stacking, you, you know, I think is shocking.
1: Is it down to price? Do you think?
4: Yeah, I, th- I think it's down to price to some degree, but also I think it's down, perhaps, to us as, as an industry and particularly some of the levy bodies and. Uh, Organisations that we are members, or farmers are members to, not not promoting and not engaging with the general public. Uh, I think the supermarkets are to blame. I think that you know some some uh, a- advertising and labelling of lamb has been very um, discriminatory to the to the British lamb, and I think that the consumer who thinks that they're backing British by shopping and picking a piece of lamb or a leg of lamb or, you know, whatever chops up from underneath a British flag, perhaps don't necessarily look, because automatically they assume that that's what it is. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely a, a very big bugbear of mine at the minute.
1: When you say discriminatory, in what, in, in what way?
4: Well, I mean, you know, we, we as, as, as a British industry and as the British farmers uh, pride ourselves on a product and grass-reared to high welfare standards anywhere, and probably the highest across, you know, Europe certainly, and if not the world. And that the farmer isn't being backed by the hand it's it's being fed by, I suppose.
1: And as you mentioned there, you know, certain products are they've got the British uh, flag on, um, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's British lamb, does it?
4: No, it doesn't. And you know, also we've seen various supermarkets going through the mill of late where. You know, they've been producing a product saying it's from X farm, Y farm and every other farm when actually, it, it you know, it's coming out of New Zealand and being processed as wild farm lamb and promoted as sort of a British product, which has absolutely got no British origin at all.
1: I know you had um, a bit of a tussle with one particular supermarket uh, probably around this time last year. Do, do you think the supermarkets are taking note? Are they listening at all? It doesn't seem to be the case, does it?
4: No, I think, you know, I've, I've had it massively with one major retailer to which I've actually still had no answer to, you know, how in April and May they can't be um, solely stacking or promoting British lamb and all they say to me is, well, you can get it on the fresh meat counter. Well, actually, how many people go into a supermarket to buy fresh meat from a counter? They just go and pick up a, a packed leg and they can't get a, a, a product which is in prime in season. Um, so I think you know all we seem to be getting, and, and you know you can look on my social media feed, you can look on several sort of farmers and auctioneers up and down through the country, and all we seem to get is a standard reply from whatever supermarket it is or whoever they delegate to, to reply to them, saying we do source during prime time season, and uh, it, it's all to do with lack of supply. Well, like I say, you know, new at last Saturday, five thousand lambs with one of a hundred and. 30 or 40 livestock markets through the country that are selling on average, let's say 1,000 head a week across a market. There's 150,000 head of sheep being sold per week live, let alone what's going through, you know, uh, butchers, wholesalers and and abattoirs on a deadweight basis. So how at this time of year they can be saying it's down to a lack of supply is just a non-argument really. We as as an industry in terms of agriculture are gonna go through a fairly turbulent time uh, with everything that's going on with Brexit, uh, uncertainty over subsidies, etc, etc. And I think what we actually need to do is re-engage with our, our our general public and be saying to them, look, you know, you have got the opportunity to be purchasing uh, a product which has got the highest welfare standards in the world, uh, is grass-fed or grass-reared, uh, is a prime product, and actually, pence per kilo, it's no less than what you're having as an imported product. So... Why don't you back your own farmers uh, and suppliers rather than, you know, uh, put, put money into the supermarket stock?
1: James Seeley, auctioneer at New York Livestock Market, supporting, no surprise, British lamb. At the start of the programme we uh, briefly heard from Chris Spratt at Open Field and mention of that snap election caused by Theresa May. As you said Chris there was uh, quite a speedy response to that announcement wasn't I, there?
2: I think we saw a pretty much an immediate reaction on the day with sterling firming and markets taking a hit of £1.50 to £2 down on London wheat futures but towards the end of the week as the markets absorbed the, the fact values recovered it's almost unchanged but sterling's firmness does as we know hinder any price rally on, on the grain markets and it makes old crop imports look potentially more attractive to consumers. Uh, That's providing, of course, they can find the source, uh, organise the logistics and finance the trade to buy in in the volume that's needed to get the price. Uh, I think uh, over the next week or two, we may well start to see the relationship between the futures market, which I know a lot of our our, uh, growers watch, uh, and the physical market start to move as we get into May. There's still a, a large open position on futures to square off. Generally, old crop wheat prices remained underpinned by the tight S&D, but capped by the proximity to imported wheat and maize prices. Uh, latest stats indicate that 1.3 million tonnes of wheat will have left the UK by the end of March. So in actual fact, that's, that's a, a pretty good effort, really, given the, uh, given the figures we started with. So the timing of harvest and the availability of other grains will be key on paper at least to the UK, going into harvest on bare boards, if the numbers are correct. So, you know, last year, Sean, we were here and we'd got to carry from old crop prices into new crop. This year, we've got a 15 to £20 pound discount to new crop, so no consumer's going to want to carry wheat through at the moment. Milling wheat premiums were there, poor and non-existent, and that's also reflecting in the poor take-off of existing contracts, with many mills dragging their heels on uh, wheat that's uh, been sold to them for April, in actual fact. New crop wheat prices, well, they have found a little support recently from the the tight old crop scenario, and and you know, even four months out, it might well be that uh, there'll be some willing buyers for that first first cut wheat. Really, the key to new crop price structure going forward, uh, I think, will be the size and and quality of the harvest again, as it was last year. An average yield will lead the UK with a small exportable surplus, without the buffer of the large carry-in that we had. Uh, last year which won't need to be sold or discounted to clear the decks alternatively um, you know if we see the yields that we had in 2015 the market will need to realign itself more to reflect uh, export parity certainly in the first part of the season old crop feed barley well that's still trading in the low 120s ex-farm with new crop feed barley trading at similar discounts to this season around about 20 pound and that's on the ideas really of larger exportable surplus on the barley with a finite demand domestically, which will have to compete with other origins on the on the international export market as it has done occasionally this season. UK prices, well, we know they've benefited from sterling weakness post Brexit. Um, that, obviously, looking at some of the scenarios we're faced with at the moment, can't be relied on going forward. So, you know, a lot of growers have already taken the opportunity and priced a, a reasonable percentage of, of of their new crop uh, at around about the sort of levels we're at at the moment, and I think that's probably prudent advice at the moment. All the trade and growers obviously still uh, weather-watching. we would dry in certain parts of Europe, most definitely, uh, and the UK in parts is, is, is getting that way. Rains in Argentina, late plantings of the US maize crop and spring wheat uh, and the El Nino concerns for later summer and early autumn are all issues that we need to keep an eye on over the next few months. Uh, as we've said, many parts of the UK need rain. France... In a similar sort of situation to where they were last year, they're growing concern that they uh, don't see a repeat of last year's crop disaster. And as we know, Sean, weather reports indicating rain have a nasty habit of turning to dust, although I am away for a few days towards the end of next week, so that's usually a good indication we'll get a drop of rain, Uh, but I wouldn't plan my workload. Uh, on my say, so anyway. And we'll see, rape generally a quiet week, uh, little trade as the market adjusted to currency movement. And it's been frustrating, really, because uh, buyers have been watching the French motif um, futures market, lowering their ideas. Sellers want similar values to the day before, and the market's just stagnated, really. Uh, little old crop to go for, but in actual fact, few sellers on the flip side. Quick look at prices May feed wheat uh, 143 to 145, with harvest 130 to 133, and November 17, 133. Thirty-three to one hundred and thirty-six with a pound a month carry, feed barley for May one hundred and eighteen to one hundred and twenty with harvest uh, nominally one hundred and five and November one hundred and thirteen pound ex farm. Also, seed rape rate for May three hundred and thirty x with no uh, harvest two hundred and ninety to two hundred and ninety-five and November three hundred to three o five. Feed beans, old crop, 160 to 162, with November at 148. And finally, spring barley, uh, old crop, uh, trade sort of uh, depleting now, really. About £140 for the best uh, spring barleys at the moment, with a wide range for um, uh, autumn, 130 to 140. The market has actually improved um, <clears throat> on the back of dryness in Europe this week, but lost a uh, similar sort of amount due to currency.
1: Thank you. Chris Spratt's Open Field. Last week, Matt Soans was discussing Brexit with Holbeach flower grower Matthew Naylor during a visit with NFU Deputy President Minette Batters. Well, as part of that discussion, they got on to the future of the industry and robotics, another change that seems to be coming to many parts of farming. Although Matthew Naylor
5: doubts they'll ultimately replace much of what he does on his farm. Anybody who's tried to change the clock on their microwave knows that technology can be a pain even when it's mass-produced and in a domestic environment so when you put it in the middle of a muddy field when it's raining um, yeah, there's obviously challenges there so we're going to try and do more to take the, um, the physical work out of what we do and we've certainly been talking to Harper Adams University about introducing robotics but I think that we're Five years away from even seeing prototypes, and ten years away from seeing anything that will radically transform what we do here.
2: Uh, I'll pose sort of the same question to you, Manette. Um, the are farmers willing to take the jump on robotics? You know, it's it, we see all these wonderful, you know, carrot picking machines or machines that can do X, Y, Z. Um, but do, do farmers want to buy them? Are they? Are they, Do they see them as useful?
0: I, farmers have embraced uh, innovation and technology. I mean, we see in our dairy industry, we've got a lot of robotic milking going on. Um, but I think there's a challenge here around around cost. So a lettuce picker, for example, is, is weighing in excess of a million pounds. Um, we've not seen any price movement in fruit and veg in the last 15 years. Um, so where is, where is that investment going to come from? I think we're still incredibly reliant on the human hand, you know, for picking a strawberry, for cutting a flower. It's precision and as Matt says, you know, the the technology without doubt is there, you know, there is the machine that can pick a strawberry, but the human hand is still proving more efficient and to a certain extent a lot more reliable. And I think we'll get there with mechanisation and automation. but not for a long time, and it will need massive, massive investment.
5: Hmm. And, I, and I would follow up by saying, as someone who, you know, we've lived in Lincolnshire for generations, we do care about this area. Um, if I go and buy a Dutch machine for a million pounds that replaces 50 workers, that's a bit of a mixed blessing for the local economy. I think that people who argue in favour of a completely mechanised world... And not realising the impact that will have on society, and I, I really do like the fact that our business supports lots of families in the area. Some, admittedly, migrants. Some who who have lived here and worked in the industry for generations, as I have. So, um, I, I don't. I think it's a shame if we if we sort of disparage, you know, working in the fresh produce industry too much, because it's a loss of jobs that keep people in touch with nature and the things that matter like food and fresh air that we depend upon.
1: Matthew Naylor and Manette Batters discussing robotics there. Our agronomist is thankfully still human. Let's return to Sean Sparling with his weekly agronomy report. Hello again Sean.
3: Yes hello again Sean. I think what we can say with some confidence is what was forecasted to happen didn't and then what forecasted to happen did. We were forecast to get some rain over the Easter weekend all of us were hoping we were going to get half an inch or so but we didn't I have now taken five millimetres of rain through the entire month of April Uh, And suffice to say, things are very, very dry and crops are incredibly stressed. And what a stressed crop brings with it is a very stressed farmer and an even more stressed agronomist. Now, there's nothing we can do about it unless you're fortunate enough to have an irrigation system on hand. But you need to bear in mind a couple of things. If you're going to irrigate spring wheat or spring barley and you're growing those crops to control blackgrass, if you've laid down a pre-emergence herbicide layer you chucking half an inch, an inch of rain at it in a very short period of time may well wash that barrier uh, away. And the only way that, the pre-ems like flufenacet for example will degrade is under microbial activity which is under wet activity so the it's catch 22 this one if you put water on a field you make the crop grow and you'll be far more relaxed about that crop but you may also make the black grass grow and if you've washed that layer of residual herbicide away you may well find the black grass grows just as quickly as the spring cereal so it's a real trade-off you need to discuss it you know your fields better than I do pick your fields if you're going to do that um, and just keep praying for rain. I'm going to have a barbecue this weekend with a bit of luck. That'll bring it on because it always does in any other year. But it is incredibly dry. There is a complication on sugar beet as well because what we did get were the minus two frosts in the middle of the week. And when you've got a sugar beet crop which is incredibly tender, poking through the ground, it's not quite at fully expanded cotyledons, you go putting a cocktail of herbicides on that with the adjuvants that come with them the risk is incredibly high that you're going to burn off those cotyledons. And if there are no true leaf buds there, you're probably going to do some significant damage. So I've been advising my growers to stay out of their sugar beet this week um, because we don't want to compromise it. Because the other factor is that whole stress thing. Um, Stress. Don't underestimate the effect stress will have on a crop and in particular how much that stress will cause extra crop damage from fertiliser or chemical scorch. Um, BYDV in spring barley and spring wheat you can find aphids quite easily, rose grain aphid, grain aphid, bird cherry aphid, they're easy to find if you get on your hands and knees and get down at crop level and look into the sun you can pick out the aphids sitting on the backs of the leaves so kind of need to get out there and get some insecticide on put some manganese with it because that'll help the the lipid or the wax on the leaves rebuild after these frosts and just remember that with the frost that we had this week you need to leave four or five days clear of those frosts before you go rolling so that the plants have an opportunity to rebuild those wax layers which is in essence what protects them Um, cereals winter cereals winter wheat winter barley winter barley some of these have got the flag leaf out now it'll only be a matter of Um, a week or so before the awns are pricking out on the most forward pieces so flag leaf timing is approaching. If you've got wild oats you need to be on with that and you need to deal with them. Winter wheat it is anything from growth stage 30 up to growth stage 35. Leaf 2 is emerging um, on some of these forward pieces of uh, skyfall in particular but also KWS lily and siskin. They're all moving quite quickly now and that's probably a stress reaction. Um, You get a little drop of rain, they suck up the nitrogen. I think what's very clear in the field is where people are using urea, these crops are not responding to that urea as quickly as they are from ammonium nitrate and that's only natural, ammonium nitrate will sink into the soil you can walk fields now that were spread with urea a week ago and you could nearly pick up the prills and put them back in the bag and the problem with urea is as it gets warmer and you get dewy nights you're going to get volatilisation and it will go upwards rather than down into the crop so you need to be aware of that uh, and monitor these crops quite closely because they may well need a little bit more nitrogen than you initially thought The disease levels are relatively benign at the moment. Yellow rust is obviously perfect weather for rust. Cool and damp nights, that's perfect for rust. So don't drop your guard against rust. Remember, epoxyconazole, very, very good triazole against rust. Um, Tebuconazole, also very good. Metconazole, very good. Prothioconazole, very good as a protectant, but not brilliant as an eradicant. So T1 fungicides are now really underway. I'm going with all of mine. I've said before I would much rather be five days early than five days late. And you don't need that wet weather to spread septoria around the canopy. They're full of them in the bottom, many of these fields. And... Even if it's like children with nits, we've said it before, the hair bashing about is enough to move septoria around. So for goodness sake, respond to the issue. Don't just put it off and sit back and say, well, it's dry, so there's no pressure there from disease. There is a lot of pressure from disease. And as soon as these dewy nights are enough to make the problems worse. And as you drive around the county, you'll see fields which are a lot yellower than others. That's probably because of a delay in the T0 fungicide. So... Don't procrastinate. Get on with it. Don't worry so much about the odd frost as long as your day temperatures are up. Things like uh, trinexapac ethyl modus will work in these conditions. You may be slightly down on the activity of a thing like uh, Chlormaquot 3C or 5C, but you need to react to the crop. Don't just wait for leaves to emerge because remember the filicron, they emerge under day degrees things are going to be quite slow for the next week or two. And if the forecasters are right, we're in for a lot more frost and cold weather next week. So pick your days, get out there and do some good.
1: Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. Well, as mentioned, there is talk of an Arctic blast heading our way this week. So uh, is it scarves and long johns back out of the
0: wardrobe? The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Uh,
1: not quite. It is going to be chillier today. Possibility of a shower, patchy clouds, some sunny spells. Highs of 13 Celsius. The wind from the west, 15 miles an hour. Overnight, staying cloudy. Uh, should be dry. Maybe some rain first thing tomorrow morning, but mostly dry. 7 Celsius. The low. The wind from the west southwest at 10, maybe gusting at 30 miles an hour in places. Tomorrow, patchy clouds, sunny spells, bit of rain in the morning, as mentioned. 10 Celsius, the high for Monday. The wind from the northwest, 15 to 20 miles an hour. And that's when things start to change. Cold nights ahead, Monday into Tuesday. Clear skies could push temperatures down to one, maybe two Celsius. Certainly a frost thirst thing on Tuesday. The wind from the northwest, 15 to 30 miles an hour. Tuesday itself we'll see a few showers we're looking at highs of around 8 celsius if we're lucky the wind from the north northwest 20 gusting at 25 miles an hour and then some late evening sunshine clear skies that means another cold night Tuesday into Wednesday freezing point could well be the low first thing on Wednesday morning so again a frost possible the wind from the north northwest 15 gusting at 30 miles an hour some sunshine but again showers through the middle of the week on wednesday seven celsius at best the wind from the north northwest 20 25 miles an hour and then as we head towards the latter end of the week there could be some particularly heavy rain coming for thursday and friday that wind continuing to blow from the north so that will keep temperatures just above freezing overnight and at about seven eight maybe nine celsius come the end of the week during the day our hourly updates will of course keep you updated with that That's the forecast then. It's Great British Beef Week this coming week, did you know? Good luck to the organisers, also ladies in beef who are now hosting a lot of events across the country over the next few days. Some great beef recipes on their website as well, well worth checking out. Whether it's beef, lambing, arable, whatever part of agriculture, have a good week's farming.